You can be seated. Mm-hmm. I couldn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. Still you give yourself away. Come on now. Reckless love of God. I'm telling you. Have you ever got a hangnail? Have you ever got a hangnail? Like, I mean, in this dry Kansas world, I get hangnails and different things of that nature. And it seems like everything I do touches on that little bit of hangnail. There ought to be something in our spirits that when we sing about the goodness of God and how he chased after us, that should touch us in everything that we do. We ought to be able to feel him in every part of our lives, in every day of our lives, in, in, in every conversation we have. It should be something that, that we feel just like that hangnail that gets on our nerve. It should be something that stirs us and, and makes us chuckle a little bit about the goodness of God. Good morning and, and, and welcome to Fellowship High Crest. Um, we're glad that you could be here this morning. Um, it's a little bit warmer. I know that's, a, that's, that's kind of strange for me to say that um, when it feels like it does outside. But sometimes you got to just thank God for what you got. Um, and so it's a little bit better. And so uh, we're glad that you're here. As I speak this morning, if this is your first time visiting, you will see page numbers on the screen that correlate with our main passage for this morning. And we do that because we want you to see that the things that we are preaching come from the word of God and not just our opinions. And so those page numbers will correlate to the blue Bibles that are in your seat. If you don't have a Bible, then please take that one as our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible that's easy to read, then please take that one as our gift to you. If you don't uh, if you have a friend that doesn't have a Bible or a family member or a neighbor that doesn't have a Bible, then please take that one and give it to them as a gift from the both of us. This morning we find ourselves in week four of our current sermon series, Living Hope. And and in this series, we are walking through um, the letters that Peter wrote um, to his followers in a part of the world that this was not an established church, really. These were people who were living on the outside. And and so we're walking through this this letters of first and second Peter in our sermon series. And if you haven't got a chance to um, be with us for these previous ones, you can catch those previous messages either. Either through our app, uh, FBC Mobile, um, or online at fellowshiphighcrest.com, and I encourage you to do so. This morning, we find ourselves in the second chapter of Peter's first letter. So, if you can turn with me there, it's on page 739 of your Bibles, uh, that, are, that are the blue Bibles that are in the seats, um, or you can get into your app. Um, I know I do a lot of things on this uh, device I have in front of me. And so if that's the way you're going, then get there electronically. And there we find it to say this. For God calls you to do good, even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. 
He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we may be dead to sin and alive for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. This is God's word. George Washington Carver was born on a farm near Diamond, Missouri in 1864. Nine years prior, Moses Carver, a white farm owner, purchased George's mother, Mary, when she was 13 years old. When Carver was an infant, him, his mother, and his sister were kidnapped from the Carver farm and sold in Kentucky. Moses Carver hired a neighbor to go and retrieve them, but the neighbor only succeeded in finding George, whom he purchased by trading one of Moses' finest horses. Carver grew up knowing little about his mother or his father, who had died in an accident before he was born. Moses Carver and his wife Sarah, uh, Susan, raised the young George and his brother James as if they were his own children, and they taught them how to read and write. George was a frail and sickly young boy and, and could not help in the field, so instead Susan taught him how to cook, how to mend, how to embroider, how to do laundry and garden, as well as how to concoct simple herbal medications. At a young age, Carver took a keen interest in plants and experimented with natural pesticides and fungicides and soil conditioners. He became known as the plant doctor to local farmers due to his ability to discern how to improve the health of their garden and orchards and fields. At age 11, Carver left the farm to attend an all-black school in the nearby town of Neosho. He was taken by in by a childless African-American couple named Andrew and Mariah Watkins, who gave him a roof over his head in exchange for his help with household chores. A midwife and a nurse, Mariah imparted on Carver her broad knowledge of medicinal herbs and her devout faith. Disappointed with the education he received in the Neosho school, Carver moved to Kansas about two years later. And for the next decade or so, Carver moved from one Midwestern town to another, putting himself through school and surviving off the domestic skills he had learned from his foster mothers. He graduated from Minneapolis High School in Minneapolis, Kansas in 1880 and applied to Highland College in Kansas. He was initially accepted to an all-white college, but was later rejected when the administration learned that he was black. In the late 1880s, Carver befriended the Mahalans, a white couple in Winters, Iowa, who encouraged him to pursue a higher education. Despite his former setbacks, he enrolled in Simpson College, a Methodist school that admitted all qualified applicants. There, one of his professors encouraged him to apply for what is now Iowa State University to study botany. In 1894, Carver became the first African-American to earn a Bachelor of Science degree. Impressed by Carver's research on the fungal infections of soybean plants, his professors asked him to stay on for graduate studies. 
And in 1896, Carver earned his Master of Agricultural Degree and immediately received several offers. The most attractive came from Booker T. Washington of Tuskegee Institute, now known as Tuskegee University in Alabama. Washington convinced the university's trustees to establish an agricultural school, which Carver would run. And while Carver was there, he enjoyed great success. He taught poor farmers that they could feed their hogs acorns instead of commercial feed and enrich their their croplands with swamp muck instead of fertilizers. He developed crop rotation through which his work on soil chemistry, Carver learned that years of growing cotton had depleted the soil's nutrients. But if they grew nitrogen fixing um, crops like soybeans and peanuts and sweet potatoes, then they when they returned to cotton, they would have dramatically higher yields. To further help farmers, he invented um, the Jessup wagon, a kind of mobile horse-drawn classroom and laboratory used to demonstrate soil chemistry. Then he invented hundreds of ways for farmers to use the surplus of other plants that they grew in the crop rotation. Dr. Carver's life was marked by both teaching and learning. He had examples that served to help him grow at every stage of life. And through it all, he became one of the greatest inventors that we have ever known. But if we are to look back, each of us can identify someone who served as an example for us. Each of us can think of someone who helped us learn how to cut the grass or wash dishes or make a bed or fold a towel or, or handle money or be generous or have a healthy marriage or even how to be a parent. We can never have enough good examples, especially when it comes to living out what we say we believe in a world that is not made up for our comfort. If we are to live life as elect exiles that demonstrate the grace of God, where do we look when we're trying to figure out how to handle when we are persecuted in need of grace? Where do we look when we have grown sick and tired of being sick and tired? Where do we look when we're trying to figure out um, how do we suffer and still exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Peter knew that this calling was not an easy one, and and he knew that if they were going to make it through what they were um, continuing to be called into, then they would need an example to help them Walk this path. As I read some of Dr. Carver's story, it might have hit you hard. Just think he was born as a fatherless slave. Nothing that he had done had caused him to experience that. The only thing uh, that he had did was was to live through birth in one of the most uh, harmful situations that this world could think of. He was a fatherless slave infant who was kidnapped. He was property who was kidnapped and stolen from his owner and had to be bought back. He had health problems. He was denied access to education. He was denied entry into a school in which he was qualified. He did nothing to bring this on but be black and breathe. But you know what? If you ever want to find a good story, then you have to look for 
a setback somewhere along the way. In the best stories, there's always the existence of the fall. The gospel truly is the best story we know. It is the best story that has ever been shared. It is the best story that the world could ever hear. And so uh, why would we ever think that we could be associated with, represent, and take forward the gospel while being far away from the fall? The gospel engages the fall. If you want to find the gospel, just look for where things are falling in ourselves and in the world around us. So many people speak about removing toxic people from their lives without doing anything about the toxicity in their own. In the world around us, in, in us, fall, the fall displays itself in a couple of different ways. The first one is resistance. The fall causes us to look past need, to resist love, to, and to resist change. The next way that the fall exhibits itself in the world around us and in us is through rejection. The fall causes us to reject God, to reject Christ, and reject those who represent Christ, namely Christians. And the third way that the fall um, displays itself in the world around us and in our own lives is through um, retribution. We see retribution in the world and in ourselves in the midst of our problems when we experience pain and when we see and experience injustice. But Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The problem is the church has often confused keeping the peace with making peace. Those who simply want to keep the peace move away from the fall. They move away from the conflict. They move away from the rejection. They move away from the resistance. They move away from the retribution. But those who are peacemakers who choose to follow Christ, they set up camp and live as elect exiles in the midst of the pain and the hurt and the need and the rejection and the resistance and the retribution. They suffer through it. They reflect the light. And why? Because that was what Christ did. As Christ chose to make peace between God and creation, he moved toward it and not away from it. He embraced it. He didn't put up a gate. He wrapped himself in flesh. The gospel invites us to follow. The gospel invites us to live amongst and near people in situations that will cause us to experience resistance and rejection and retribution. It invites us to, to love beyond what seems natural, to meet needs that don't seem to affect us, to embrace change that goes beyond what we've previously known, and to admit our need for God in every part of life and to not equate retribution with justice. And when we experience suffering and yet we choose to still follow, there are some things that we will experience some things that we are allowed access to. And the first is the example of Christ. As Dr. Carver went through life, he made it through by copying the things that he had learned before. At the time he was learning them, he might have thought all those things were useless, those those. Uh, household skills, the embroidery, the, the chores of making the bed and all those different things. But 
those supplied the way for him to get education later on. There's some things you're going through in this room that right now you think are useless. There's some things you you can't imagine why God would ever have you experience them. I want to tell you that he's using them for something. That there's a greater purpose in them. That what may look like unnecessary today can prove very, very beneficial tomorrow. Peter uses some unique words to make his point. When he says in our passage, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example and you must follow in his steps. The words that he uses literally paint the picture of a student tracing letters. Now, we have um, apps and different things today. I was on PBS Kids app with my kids last night, and we were playing this game where they got to trace letters in just the same way. Now, when you had those, those big gentleman pencils and that gray paper, you might have thought that that was just, that was useless things. But what God was allowing you to experience that and saying, that's the exact same way I want you to be with my son Christ. I want you to learn how to trace so that when you go out and live and when you read my word that you're trying to trace his life with your own. A disciple was to follow so closely behind their rabbi that as they got to the end of the day, they would be covered with dust. And the dust would be from the, from the dust that was kicked up from the heels of their rabbi as they walked on dusty streets. They tried to copy, uh, they didn't try to just be similar to their rabbi. They wanted to be exactly like their rabbi. They wanted to have all the same mannerisms. They wanted to do everything exactly the way that they were supposed to be, the way that they did them. That is what the image is here. The question is, are you dusty? You know, when we played football, we could always tell who rode the bench and who actually played in the game. Those who played would not come back to the locker room the same way that they left. Their uniforms would have some blood and some blood and some sweat and some and some dirt on them. If you pride yourself in staying conflict and drama and risk free, you have to ask if you're following, if you're making peace or just keeping it. If your first concern is staying clean, you will find it nearly impossible to follow Christ. If your first <laughs> concern is making sure that you're not involved in the fray, then you're going to find it hard to follow Christ. If your first concern is is making sure that you stay away from all the drama ever, then you're going to find it hard to follow Christ. I often tell people when they come, I say, you know what, we want to be wise in how we do ministry. But if your first concern is never being taken advantage of, then you're not going to be able to do ministry. There's going to be some risk involved. There's going to be some times when you fail. If you, not, if you never fail in, in what you're attempting to do, then you're not dreaming big enough. And your view of God is way too small. Our verse started with four, which if you were here last week means that we should do what? 
We should read up. There you go. When reading up and starting from verse 13, you find that that what Peter is telling his readers in our focal passage comes in the context of when you find yourself suffering at the hands of those in authority over you. It says that even when you don't like the leader, um, you are still called to submit to their authority. In verses 13 through 15, it talks through um, in terms of government. And, And in 18 through 20, it talks in terms of employment. In a second, I'm going to walk through how Jesus demonstrated this. But, but before I get there, I want to throw a word of caution in here. This is why it's important to read the whole of Scripture and not just cherry pick verses. This passage that we're studying this morning has been used for great atrocities throughout history. Verses like this in Romans 13 have been used to keep people in bondage and in awful situations. Very often those in power like to pick and choose when a situation is okay to step outside of these scriptures. For instance, if the founders of our country wouldn't have rebelled against their leaders, then we wouldn't have a country. Every 4th of July, we celebrate rebellion against authorities. And I have been in few cities that do it the way Topeka does it. (laughs) Y'all forget we got toddlers at home. I've never seen a city that has to put out a schedule for when you can know how fireworks over a week. Every January on, on MLK Day, we celebrate rebellion against authority. Would anybody look at what our founding fathers did or what MLK and those in the civil rights movement did and say they were acting outside the will of God? We have to read the whole of Scripture. Passages like these are what helped Hitler gain so much power while the church stayed silent. They 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 are what helped the institution of chattel slavery grow and fester while the church stayed silent. They what allowed the church to stay silent and apathetic to Jim Crow and Dred Scott and segregation. Let's not repeat history. There comes a time when you must throw the tea in the harbor, when you must form an underground railroad, when you must keep your seat on the bus, when you must take that seat at that lunch counter, when you must drink from that fountain. There comes a time for all those things. What Peter is saying is that if you decide to step outside of what the authorities order you to do, you will suffer. Like Christ did. He suffered. You need to know that when it's time for you to take a stand outside of those things that the authorities ask you to do, that that does not protect you from suffering. Many people say that, man, if I was alive during the civil rights era, I would have marched with them. Well, there's still civil rights issues going on today. But it's going to cause us to be involved in ways where we suffer. I want to be clear, not every situation is a situation in which we should revolt and rebel over. And more often than not, we'll display the character of Christ and the truth of the gospel by submitting to those who have authority over us. Now, outside of those few and far in between times when we should rebel as an example of of, of, as Christ did, we should submit to the authorities over us. And verses 22 to 23 show us the way. How did Christ submit to the authorities over him and display the love of God? Verse 22 starts off by saying he never sinned. In a culture where sin was acceptable and profitable, he entrusted himself to God. 
I know it may be cool for you to take that one business call in that rental car that you rented on vacation and then write it off as a business expense. But if you are acting with integrity, you won't do that. Next, it says that he didn't deceive anyone. In a culture that didn't embrace his values, he stayed his true, authentic, and vulnerable self. I know it, it may be acceptable and profitable for you to be inauthentic in situations, to not be your full self and to change to fit the environment. But that doesn't help. That doesn't reflect Christ in these situations. And third, he didn't retaliate or threaten revenge. In a dog-eat-dog world, he forgave without condition. Let me say that again. He forgave without condition. The second thing we get as we commit to following Christ in the midst of suffering is the substitute of Christ. The emphasis that Peter is trying to make with his readers in verse 24 is not because Jesus died that you can pray away all your physical ailments. And I know that's how the last part of that verse is often used. But that is, in the context of this passage, the emphasis of this passage is that Jesus didn't just die for our forgiveness, but he died to empower us to live in righteousness. Yes, Jesus died for us to be forgiven, but he also died for us to live and walk in righteousness. Following Christ is a call to suffer, and suffering takes a toll on us. And so Peter is saying that through the death of Christ and the example of Christ, when we're called to submit to unjust powers or to rebel so that we can continue following Christ with integrity, Christ has already given us what we need to endure. It also shows that when we fail to live in the righteous way in which Christ is described in these verses, that we are healed of our sin by his act of being our substitute. He knew we were going to mess up. He knew we weren't going to be consistent. And that's why he acts as our substitute. And the third thing we get is we get the shepherd of Christ. When things get hard, And we do wonder, Christ guides us back and watches over our souls. There are going to be times when the pain does become too much. I'm loving all the recent articles and publishing around saying, debunking the myth that God will never give you more than you can handle. How many years has that been so hurtful to people? As they walked through things and thought, I'm making too big of an issue with what I'm going through. Because everybody always told them this tagline, God will never give you more than you can handle. And so they figured out, they, they would think that something must be wrong with me. Because I'm supposed to be able to deal with this better than I am. When the truth of the matter is, he gives us more than we can handle, so we see that we need him. In a world of try harder, he says, trust in me. And it's so helpful to understand and know that we have somebody who watches over us and that will walk beside us as we come back. 
Dr. Carver's story started off rocky and it never got easy, but it has, it has encouraged many others. Our stories have the potential to do the same as we live as elect exiles in a strange place. Living a life that inspires others to follow Christ means engaging in areas where you see the fall in your life and in the community around you. It means following the example of Christ. And as you do life, you call others into it so that you can say, as Paul said, be imitators of me as I am am an imitator of Christ. That should be all of our goal is is to live a life where that would be on our tombstone. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. As we lean into the brokenness in our world, and as we see and follow the example of Christ, we'll be challenged in how we live. We'll need God's forgiveness for the times that we succumb to the pressures of persecution. And we'll find comfort in the fact that Christ's presence will never depart us. If you're here this morning, I want to let you know that this was an outsider talk. This was a talk for those who had decided already to follow Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you came here without having done that, you don't have to leave that way. You may have ended the day trying to do it on your own, trying to figure out how you can be good enough, how you can overcome the issues in your life, how you can make it better in your life. But you can leave today knowing that it's done through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If you've never done so, I want to give you an opportunity to do what we call stepping across the line of faith. What that simply means is admitting that that you can't do it on your own. Admitting that you are going to get it wrong. Admitting that you, you are imperfect, but that God loves you enough that he sent his one and only son to die on your behalf, but he didn't leave him dead. He raised him from the grave. And if you believe it's solely by that act alone that you are able to have a relationship with God, then we say that you have stepped over the line of faith from trusting in yourself to trusting solely in Christ. If you have stepped over the line of faith, your next step is being willing to be identified as an outsider. And we do that through the act of water baptism. Here at Fellowship High Christ, we practice baptism on the third Sundays of each month. If that's your next step, you can go to the Welcome Center, which is by the front doors, and you can sign up to be a part of that. We can get that scheduled. We can have that happen. If you are here and you have found and are following Christ, then ask yourself, are you living as a peacemaker or a peacekeeper? Are you a firefighter or are you looking for the quickest way to get out of harm's way? And is that way of living following Christ's example or feeding your comfort? Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that 
as you look down on creation and all of its brokenness, at the marred image of man who was supposed to reflect you, that instead of distancing yourself, you chose to draw near. Your word says that you incline toward us when we pray. There's no greater gift that we could have received than your son, Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for that gift. We're thankful that you sent him to be an example of how to continue to follow you when things get rough, when life is not easy, when we suffer for just being obedient. Father, we ask that even in times where we want to get revenge, in times where we want to rebel, in times when we want to wonder that you would give us a heart to not only do the right thing, but to start to the desire to continue to remain faithful and be persistent. Father, if there's anyone here today that that walked into this place struggling because they can't handle the load that they carry, Father, I ask that they would place their load at your feet. They would trust themselves to you, that they would see they have a hero, a savior, a shepherd and overseer of their souls who cares for them, who gave his life for them so that they could be one with you. Father, let us be people who run into the burning building, who go to make peace, who see areas of fall, who see areas of rejection, who see areas of resistance, who see areas of retribution, and we choose to walk into them and reflect your light. Let us be people who are willing to suffer because that's what you did for us. Let us be people who embrace and love and don't look past need. Let us be people who who don't resist change, but yield to your Holy Spirit, Father, that we may be shaped into the image of your son, Christ. Let our lives be a reflection of his. Let our handprint be an image of his, Father. Let us trace his life with our own. In our schools, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, Father, let them begin to be changed because you are there through our representation. Father, lift us, restore us where we've been broken. Help us to believe that we have what we need to endure. And that you have already overcome. We pray these things in your darling son Jesus name. Amen.